for joining the podcast. A podcast that is not a marketing podcast, but nonetheless, a podcast for marketers. Today, we're speaking about public space with Martin Barry, and I ask if we can get it back, and how will it have changed once we do? And Martin is probably the best person to speak to about this. Martin is the founder of two projects, the first being the Recite Festival, a platform, a kind of connecting space that brings together urbanists, architects, developers, and the public. And a big part of the project's agenda is discussing the development of our public spaces. And the second project that Martin has founded is the Manifesto Market, which is a space that brings food and beverage vendors and retailers and artists into, well, one public space. Now, the location of the Manifesto Market is in Prague, and on most days, it's exactly the kind of environment where you'd want to spend a day out with friends and family and perhaps a drink with your colleagues after work. But now, obviously, Martin had to shift the business model. So we discussed that as well, and we touch on what this crisis means for restaurants and food vendors and businesses like his. Anyway, without further delay, let's get into the conversation. And we're live with uh, Martin Berry. Martin, thanks for uh, hopping on a call, and I really appreciate you taking the time. And uh, dare I ask uh, how you're actually doing right now? Montes, it's always good to talk to you. Um, I'm doing okay. You know, it's like, a, it's a funny question to ask. I think everyone just wishes they press the record button uh, or the play button, sorry, on their chest. And it's like, you know, I'm doing fine. I'm surviving. My family's healthy. Um, thankfully, we, we can say that, right? We have, uh, my family in the United States and also here in, in Europe is, is all fine. And my, my team is fine. So we're fortunate that we're not dealing with like the brunt of the crisis as other people are. At least on the health side, financially, of course, we we uh, we're under tons of stress. But that's a, that's another story that'll take the entire podcast, I think. Well, I want to use this time and and kind of obviously use your expertise on uh, public space and really everything that uh, comes with it. And I think there's there's many questions that are concerning me, and I think are concerning many people as well in my industry, marketers who are outdoor advertisers and just people who actually love. Uh, public space. And I think, you know, this crisis, uh, in many ways, uh, you know, public space is at its core. The, the risk uh, lies within our shared environments right now. Uh, what do you think are the implications of this for public uh, space uh, in the long run? Uh, will we, will it lose value uh, over this time? Or will it return to kind of where it was before and will continue valuing it? Yeah, the it's so hard to read the barometer on this one. Like, um, mm. like returning to where it was before—that's a really tough one, uh, a really tough call. I think I actually think that that the value of public space, like to the core of your question, um, the value of public space will increase after mm. this crisis um, because, uh, particularly outdoor public space, um, mm. I, I've seen the places that where we live now right in, in prague um the public spaces that are most well managed um are the most active right now i i walk around the city or ride my bike uh, almost every day now 
for the last two months, and the city's largely empty because uh, because of the crisis, people staying at home and, and no tourists. Um, the places that are actually almost a little bit scary because there's so many people are parks um, mm-hmm. and and public squares. So uh, places that like uh, that sell beer and food, like restaurants and pubs, obviously are not open yet, but they are selling takeaway. The ones that are on squares uh, are doing quite well. Uh, for example, I was in one last night or outside of one last night, and there was like 50 people hanging out in public space, right, on the, on the street, sidewalk, um, safe, safe distanced uh, as well. But I think these kind of places that are well-managed, well-run, and have an active interface with, with retail uh, or gastronomy, they will do uh, quite well. Um, some of the parks in Prague are, are relatively crowded on, on the afternoons and weekends. The weather is nice. So the value of these places, I think, increases over time after this crisis because we will be more grounded um, for better or worse. Like uh, we're not going to travel as much. It's just going to be, be on pause for the next year or so. Um, one, because of the health crisis and two, because of the financial crisis that's coming. So right. all of us are going to kind of conserve um, our resources, our money, and we're going to stay home mostly. So going to the park is kind of like a vacation. Uh, at least that's how I feel when I'm in the park. So I think mm-hmm. like these kind of spaces, they have to be, uh, it's a time for cities, municipalities, and private businesses to focus more on them. In fact, provide better services in parks and public spaces um, and make sure they're clean and healthy. That's that's going to be huge, uh, and I think it will increase the value. Right. Yeah. So it it seems that you really cannot take us out of public spaces where we're just simply drawn to it. And you know, you mentioned we can kind of clean them and and uh, make sure that they're they're they don't they aren't essentially the grounds for viruses to to spread. But as architect, uh, as an architect yourself, and maybe uh, working with city planners. Uh, you know how much uh, effort everyone's uh, putting into future-proofing projects uh, against, you know, climate change, against uh, uh, other disasters. Uh, do you think this is going to be another variable that we're uh, future-proofing for? And uh, actually, can you protect public space uh, from this kind of uh, crisis through design? And what may those solutions uh, look like? Yeah, I think I think you can uh, use this as an opportunity to future proof. Um, we're seeing cities like New York, uh, where I'm from, limit traffic, for example. So there's been less cars in the street because people are forced to work from home. Um, and so New York City has uh, provided, in fact, more public space by closing streets uh, for pedestrians mm-hmm. only in the last uh, two weeks. So what was a pilot program for the last like uh, seven or eight years in New York on Broadway has now become a kind of citywide program to close streets and actually provide more places for pedestrians. It happens in Mexico City as well. Um, so this is inherently good for cities by reducing the amount of traffic. And I, mm-hmm. I hope these measures stick. Um, one of the victims of COVID will be in, in the short term, and I think also in the kind of medium term, is public transportation. Um, mm-hmm. We've seen in the United States for sure, and New York is another example, there, um, the, the subways have been kind of abandoned by typical commuters, and they've been kind of overcome with homeless and camping out in, in the subway. 
um, it's become a little bit of a problem the last couple of weeks. So if cities don't like actively encourage people to return to public transit and, and do a good job of kind of cleaning and, and making sure they're hygienic, um, making sure people are wearing face masks mm-hmm. and things, then th- th- there's a big risk that, in fact, we might see more cars on the street. Um, that, that's I think that's happening so far in Europe. So in Prague, I think we're seeing uh, increased traffic, even though there's less people traveling and commuting, there's more cars right. uh, on the streets. It's That's been documented last week. So the the future-proofing aspect of this, I think, is is how seriously we take our commitment in cities um, uh, to public space and public transit, because we can regain space that was lost to cars and parking um, now, and we've seen how good that can be for air quality. Uh, and Asia is one of the best examples where the air quality in China has improved markedly since uh, the start of the crisis. Now. We don't want to see the economy fall uh, in order for mm-hmm. air quality to improve. But what it proved is that if we kind of if we can constrain the use of cars and also clean up um, uh, manufacturing yeah. outputs, then then there is a real opportunity to, to make an impact on um, positive impact on the climate. Yeah. So I see this as a as a good point to start from. Um, but as always, Montes, it, it has to do with how committed governments are mm-hmm. and private corporations are to, to improving. The big fear is that people will just say, like, you know, economic recovery at all costs mm-hmm. and, and kind of abandon all the strides we've been making, particularly in the last two or three years and, and kind of climate forward progress. Right. And uh, of course, you know, it will largely depend on uh, how this changes our work culture. You know, if we do really move to a remote working environment, uh, if more companies switch to that, that perhaps that can alleviate some of the, the traffic concerns that are that are there. Yeah, I think that uh, you bring up a great point. I think that's going to be um, a pretty big trend in, in the next year or two is, is definitely in the next six to nine months. What we found, um, just a micro example in my office is uh, even though um, it's just a recommended policy to work from home, uh, the majority of the mm-hmm. large majority of the office is working from home for the last two months. Um, all the other CEOs I surveyed, uh, in fact, I, I talked to one last night. They have four thousand employees around Europe. They sent them kind of survey out yesterday to see uh, how many employees would like to come back to the office. And of the four thousand employees, it was a mandatory survey. 83 said they would come back to work in the office <laughs> in the next uh, three months. <laughs> so, wow. Um, that, that's a, it's really surprising to me uh, that people, per, that I think they've gotten used to working from home. Um, mm-hmm. It's inconvenient at times, but I think the, there's a lot of convenience work, particularly for people who commute uh, longer distances. So, like, you know, if you can work from home, why would you commute like one or two hours a day to get back and forth? Yeah, more? certainly. I can see this uh, kind of conversation go two directions that maybe we can return to, to one, the topic of office space a little bit later. But first, I just want to want to talk about a little bit about population density, which is uh, obviously is just a key factor in this crisis. And you see, you know, dense areas like you mentioned, New York, London and Madrid really take a hit. And, and, and the rural, rural areas and suburbs are sort of escaping this uh, easier a little bit. And of course, there's a vast difference in experiences of people self-isolating in uh, 
these different environments. You know, if you're isolating in a one bedroom apartment, that experience is totally different than isolating in a detached uh, home with a pool. Uh, will will this change how we look at uh, urban sprawling versus uh, inner city development? Do you think? Well, maybe in the short term, but I I, I tend to. I'm an optimist on on this issue, and I tend to believe that people uh, still want to be in places where innovation and education and interaction happens. Um, And I believe that the trend of working from home is not really long-term, because for companies like mine or lots of companies, uh, it's not really that sustainable. Even if the Mm -hmm. efficiency improves, uh, the communication breaks down really easily and and the processes break down. So you have to have a completely different kind of process when you're working from home, um, like mm-hmm. how to get things done in offices. So I believe this won't be a long-term trend. Um, and therefore, I believe that people started, particularly in, let's say, our generation or, or those that are under the age of 40, um, we, we've become accustomed to the conveniences of the city. So... You know, mm-hmm. which has to do with kind of delivery, food delivery, um, access to services. And I think it's not really a great time to talk about cultural events, but that's one thing that I believe mm-hmm. will come back eventually. And so we're going to want to be around these things. Um, and I believe the cost of housing will drop uh, because of this. Mm-hmm. And therefore, it'll be more attractive to live in city centers. So I think there's going to be a reset in commercial and, and residential real estate prices. Um, uh, not a crisis, but a reset, and I think that will help uh, bring people uh, continue to bring people into city center. Right. That that's good to know that this is only a short term envy I have for some of my friends who have garden access and uh, you know yeah. all day fresh air. But I've seen it too. Yeah, and it makes me envious that I can't like jump in the pool on a hot day. Also, but at the same time, I'm happy to be able to walk outside and see other people occasionally. So. I'm kind of a weird introvert, extrovert. You know, I really like my personal time, but I need to live around other people, even though if I don't want to talk to them. <laughs> yeah, uh, we all found our introvert uh, during this time to to some degree. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Martin, I want to so. I want to ask you. So, what the hell do we do with all the office space then? You know, if if the companies do shift to a, a more remote kind of work uh, place that's distributed, what do we do with all the office space? Convert them. I think like uh, cities like uh, that we live, let's let's focus on Prague because that's where we are. Um, the cities like Prague have a uh, had a huge housing shortage in the last like uh, five ten years, and what we've uh, been studying at Resite is 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 uh, how to create affordable housing in the mm-hmm. next ten years to accommodate the, need, the growing needs of an urban population. Um, that's a perfect opportunity to do conversions. So. Conversions have worked in places like New York City um, or London, where there's been kind of housing cri- affordable housing crises, um, but at the same time, compression in the office or, or retail market. So mm-hmm. you can easily convert spaces, office spaces, as you as we did with warehouses in the 1990s or early 2000s, to be uh, residential. And I think that's has to be a big trend in in, um, in the next like five to ten years, because I think. The trend has been mm. to to change the way we work, um, and whether we're talking about shared office spaces or serviced office spaces, um, or work from home, like the office trend uh, trends are changing. So it's 
it's high time to convert a lot of these buildings into residential buildings. May I jump to um, another topic, which is, uh, well, the the business that you're, you're, the project that you're running, which is a manifesto, and maybe you can actually explain to the audience in more detail uh, what the project is. Uh, but essentially, it's a project that largely depends on, on uh, public to be able to move freely. And in, in some sense, it's kind of your ultimate public space. Uh, and uh, over this past couple of weeks, I saw you shift your business model so quickly. And I'm just curious what you learned through this uh, journey. And if you think uh, uh, this will change how you see your business evolve into the future. And, uh, you know, how are you actually future-proofing uh, Manifesto for this? Yeah, that's a packed, uh, that's a packed series of questions. So I'll start with the kind of, um, with the, all of you. So for those of you who, who don't know what, what we do, so some of the things I talked about with Montes just a few minutes ago, that kind of draws on my background um, of running Recite, a nonprofit I founded in 2012 which focuses on the urban environment and architecture. And uh, we studied a lot of these kind of core urban issues. And out of that grew a project called Manifesto, which, um, which is now a completely separate entity and company, which um, we call it a hospitality platform that creates unique experiences uh, for people in cashless environments. So what does that really mean is that we have two, uh, two locations. There are two markets. Mm-hmm. Um, there, we, we basically build the we build the market and we sublease or lease the spaces in the market to independent restaurants and retailers so we have something i think 35 tenants in two locations and this is a place where you, you come uh, and eat from like in our first market you can order food from 19 different uh, food and beverage operators or, or restaurants and cafes uh, and find four or five different independent retailers there um, of course, we that we're kind of in position, and we're not a food and beverage operator per se, but because we own the real estate that that leases to uh, food and beverage operators, we're uh, primarily we're kind of like right in the middle of it mm-hmm. um, of the crisis. We're at the bullseye, basically. Yeah. And so, of course, when we found out in mid March that we we would have to close, you know, indefinitely, and now it's going on two months. That was a huge hit for us. So part of what I tried to do with Manifesto is is to make it a company that merges the kind of digital and analog worlds of food and beverage markets. Um, mm-hmm. We always found that the marketplace, like food halls, food markets, were super antiquated. Like they're old-fashioned. Uh, right. They were The infrastructure wasn't really set up for the modern consumer. Usually, you know, these are places where cash is exchanged. Um, between vendor and and uh, customer, and we found the uh, I found the environments really dirty and a little bit like scuzzy. So mm-hmm. the the model was to kind of clean up the, the food hall, food market environment, um, and do that with a uh, a backbone of technology and data uh, that that could help small businesses grow. So as mm-hmm. uh, tenants, we we only work with small businesses uh, for the most part. And that they are usually gastro entrepreneurs who have, you know, either no other locations and they open with us for the first time, or they have other restaurants and they want to kind of scale their brand into a new brand or test a new product. So they come into the manifesto to do that. And so what we do is we use the 
the data environment that we create is an entirely cashless market, which means people pay only with credit card or digital payments. Mm-hmm. And we try to help, we try to analyze the data to help our tenants with menus, uh, marketing. Um, we use that to kind of curate the tenant, the tenant mix, different to get different types of restaurants. Uh, and we use it to help understand the customer. So we can kind of mm-hmm. uh, provide a better service and a better offer to the customer. Um, what part of that story is that we always wanted, and, and part of the original plan, was to build a delivery platform uh, that would be based on the entire on the market. So mm-hmm. what that means is we wanted to take the market experience where you can order from 19 different restaurants um, and bring that online. So you could also be at home and have a market experience ordering from 19 different restaurants and get one delivery partner to bring you the food, which uh, we built the kind of roadmap and the timeline mm-hmm. and the investment needed for that. And we expected to start that, building that software and technology later this year after we raised money for it. Of course, when COVID kind of struck, um, struck home, we, we decided that we had to do this immediately. So we couldn't wait for a new investment. We just needed to do it mm-hmm. what we had. So we quickly built a white label platform. Then we decided to partner with Uber Eats uh, to launch it. And so we basically have now put 15, about 15 restaurants online uh, where the customer can order from all 15 and have one delivery guy or, or lady bring it to your house. Right, so you, uh, you don't have that experience, right, directly on Uber Eats, where you can order from different vendors. I think, right, you're you're limited to one. You're limited to one. So those that that often order um, order delivery, which is the case for a lot of customers in bigger cities, um, the, you just can order from one restaurant, basically. So let's say, like, you, not this, you want to have uh, Japanese, and and your partner wants to have burgers or barbecue. And you have a kid and they want pizza or Italian. Mm-hmm. Um, more than likely, you're going to sit around the table and say, guys, what do you want to eat tonight? And, and or if you're with a group of friends and somebody's going to win in the negotiation, right? So it's, if you have kids, the kids are going to win and you're going to order Italian uh, or something like uh, hot dogs. Mm-hmm. So, so everyone's yeah. going to have to have hot dogs because it's just Yeah, I'm easier. the one who loses all the time. Usually I am too because I just too many other things to fight about in life. So I just say, I'll eat whatever you guys get. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll share the pad thai. <laughs> um, but in many cases, we, we often, we don't want to do that. You, you know, you might want pad thai, but someone else might want um, ramen or or, uh, or burgers. So with Manifesto now, you can do that. You can have the market experience online. Everyone can order what they want. And, and one person shows up with delivery and one payment. And that exists nowhere in the world. Uh, a couple of companies tried it. Amazon tried it. Uh, Uber Eats tried it. Deliveroo has tried it, um, and now Uber's former CEO, Travis Kalanick, is trying it with like $400 million in, in Asia. Mm. But they haven't actually been successful. So we were able to do this in like five five days uh, because we kind of outlined what we wanted, and then we were able to build it very quickly. Of course, it's not perfect, uh, but the great thing about this process, this COVID period, this is back to your first question, what did you learn? Well, we learned how to do this. In fact, we had drafted mm-hmm. it before but we hadn't actually tested it um my thesis was that people who ordered more than one dish would would definitely order from more than one restaurant and i thought maybe 50 percent of the time that would be the case it turns out that like uh, the customer who wants more than one uh, who has orders one of more than one dish 
78% of the time they're ordering from multiple restaurants or more than one restaurant. And as you go up in the number of dishes you order, the percentage mm. increases. So like up to the point where it's almost 90% if you're ordering four different dishes, you're ordering four different restaurants most likely. Um, 90% of the time. So that was uh, my exact experience as well. I, I ordered from Manifesto and it was a mixed order. It's just, it's convenient. Yeah, it's it's really interesting too to see what people order. You know, sometimes people order like a, a mac and cheese and um, like, you know, a $20 steak. This is really interesting kind of ordering behavior where they order a hot dog mm -hmm. and they, then they order a, like a, an expensive poke bowl. So it's, it's, it's obviously like a girlfriend, boyfriend in that combination, right? <laughs> the guy wants like a burger or a hot dog and, and the woman wants something a little bit healthier. So of course it's not always the case, but we're seeing uh, definitely a, the, the customer demand is there for this kind of service. So we learned how to do it. It's like kind of the beauty of the last uh, four weeks or sorry, eight weeks. Mm -hmm. that we were able to test this this product and now refine it. So that that's obviously a, a successful way to really shift a, a business model for for you guys. And and it's nice that this was something long in the making. Um, so it's just the circumstances force you to, of course, accelerate this. But what, what the hell do the other restaurants do? Um, and maybe we can talk a little bit about this. Like what, what, what are your projections for the restaurant industry and the, the food vendors out there? Uh, you know, we're discussing quite a few restrictions uh, for them now and reducing table size, but I can't imagine probably for some moving from like a 12 table to a six table scenario is essentially like closing a, a business. What are our solutions for, for the industry? What, what are your thoughts here? It's, it's unfortunately not really pretty, Montos. Like um, some of like my friends in, in Hong Kong who own Yardbird, Mm. We're kind of the first to publish this um, widely, what the restrictions were in Hong Kong and, and how it was affecting the business. And they were forced to reduce the um, the number of tables by half. And mm -hmm. um, they basically are operating the business at, at break-even points or, or close to a loss. So this is going to be the case. Uh, I read in the Times last week that 75% of restaurants in the United States were probably closed. That is a huge number. It's, it's it's hard to fathom. Um, it's from the, the restaurants uh, association in the United States. In in Czech Republic, where we are now, um, I heard that maybe fifty percent might close, and that's devastating, right? The entire industry would um, would be devastated if fifty percent of the restaurants closed. So, what it's going to do? Like uh, some restaurants can sustain this uh, short term. Uh, but but not many because like as David Chang from from Momofuku Brand pointed out many times in the last few weeks is that restaurants are typically living like on last month's revenues right they're paying the, the fish and the meat that they order they're paying with this month's uh, cash flow so it's it's really a devastating situation for most of them we're a different situation because um, we're we're not, again, we're not really a food and beverage operator. We're not a restaurant. We, we see ourselves as a real estate owner and operator uh, of markets and, and a technology company that helps small businesses uh, survive times like this, frankly. So I think it's going to be the short term for us, I think is going, uh, our, our projection is a little bit easier because we're primarily outdoors, our two locations. And so 
what we've seen so far, like I told you about parks and public spaces, that people are ready to come back outside and be outside mm-hmm. and consume. And we've seen like you know, queues at ice cream shops and, and beer, mostly places that sell beer in the last couple of weeks. In the short term, we we don't see a return to normal business, but we see something like a 30% reduction in what our expectation was uh, for the season, uh, which is survivable for us and it's survivable for the uh, majority of our mm-hmm. tenants. And because it's a little bit cheaper for, it's a lot cheaper, frankly, uh, for, for restaurants to open with us, um, the cost of entry and startup is, is like 10% of what it might be in a normal space. Um, and the leases are, uh, the operating costs are more favorable than having your own long-term lease in, in, a, in a brick and mm. water space. We actually have a waiting list to get into Manifesto. Oh, wow. So, which is active. We have four new, new good tenants, like really high quality tenants come to us in the last 10 days. So I think like our, the future was kind of built on that, that it would be tougher and tougher for restaurants to survive in normal real estate. We see that trend being accelerating now. So I think it's tough for us. I don't want to give you the impression that like we're like everything crazy on the manifesto side. It's, it's really hard. Um, and we've had to make some really painful decisions with the, the team and, and the way we operate. Um, but I think we can survive um, and we have to innovate if we're going to thrive after this. So that's what we've been focusing mm-hmm. on the last like three, four weeks. So the world before coronavirus and the world uh, after coronavirus, uh, how are those two worlds different uh, if you're looking from, from where you're sitting in, in your industry? Well, from our side, like we have to be much more cautious as operators. So we were always dedicated to, of course, like high hygiene and operational standards. Um, but we have to be even more dedicated to that now to ensure a safe and hygienic environment. So what that means is like I never would have imagined that we'd be taking the temperature of our tenants when they showed up uh, to open mm-hmm. open their place of work. But that's what we do now. We our, our site managers take the temperature of the, the chefs and, and the people working in separate businesses at Manifesto every day. Mm. Um, we'd like to kind of actually implement some technology to anonymize this and give the customer uh, some more security that, that things are okay, that everyone's healthy that's working there. Mm-hmm. Um, to provide like kind of increased transparency on the on the way we operate. Um, we've done simple things like uh, put in more you know, stations for sanitizing so these kind of sanitizing sprays and alcohol sprays are all over disinfectants are all over the market now of course we're wearing masks and so there's like the physical changes you'll see less seats in restaurants or markets mm. the shift uh to uh, contact with payments is accelerating and, and so we we were one of the first places in europe to be completely cashless uh and so we have a kind of leg up on this so we we are not only cashless, but we're trying to use the data in order to provide a better experience to the customers and help our tenants grow. Um, I think this is another kind of thing that we focused a lot on. Um, that we're you know a year and a half into um, is, is mm-hmm. how to um, how to use data safely and and responsibly in order to help our tenants grow, help them understand the customers better. Um, not just for marketing purposes, but but for the offer that's that's provided a manifesto and and the services we provide so we're using that data also to help us project um 10 days out from today uh mm-hmm. what the business will look like based on weather based on uh, history of transactions or other kind of events or things happening in the city 
so we can understand like staffing needs, purchasing needs um, for us and for our tenants. So everyone's going to have to do something like this now uh, because the industry will become, there's going to be a huge consolidation in hospitality and food and beverage particularly, which means the big uh, restaurant groups will get bigger. It's just inevitable. Mm-hmm. They're going to kind of swallow up the, the, the guys that are struggling. Um, and probably there'll be a proliferation of genes, unfortunately. So independent businesses will have a really hard time surviving the next, uh, like I'd say, six to 12 months in this business. And so mm-hmm. I think for the midterm, you're going to see a lot of uh, growth of chains. Um, and so it kind of reminds me of like what happened in the 80s and 90s, where big restaurant groups kind of dominated the scene. They're able to respond faster and, and uh, you know, create more tailored offers and do higher, higher pitched, uh, higher frequency marketing. So mm-hmm. that's going to be tough to, for a lot of people to compete with. Um, and of course, there's just uh, the, the the risk right now, you know, if you were a small restaurant uh, kind of owner to, let's say, even consider for anyone to open a small restaurant right now is just just madness. But as, I suppose as a, as a bigger business, uh, as a chain, you're able to take some risks uh, that are calculated in that regard. Yeah, I think the bigger restaurant groups and chains, fast food particularly, are, are probably well positioned for this. Uh, kind of crisis because they can expand with better, you know, better terms in the real estate, mm-hmm. and also uh, the uh, customers will want more affordable food, things like this. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think it's over for independent restaurants. I think it's really tough. Um, but one of the things that we're trying to do is create a product that's attractive and affordable for for small businesses. So I think, in fact, we're accelerating our expansion dreams. Um, I think that this is a great environment for us to try to innovate and, and even bring down the cost of our service to, to, for, for restaurants that want to operate Manifesto. So that's where our plan is. Over the next year, we're actually going to try to accelerate our expansion plans. Uh, Martin, where can we follow what you're doing? And maybe if we have follow-up questions, uh, get in touch with you. One of the things you can do is follow us on, on Instagram, at Manifesto Market, or uh, you can follow the the city things that we're, we're doing on Resite. We've just launched a really cool podcast um, that my colleague Alex is is running. Uh, we also have uh, videos on our, our Resite YouTube channel with lectures. Um, and Manifesto side, yeah, always check into our website manifestomarket.com, and our Instagram is really the most up to date resource. So we're constantly kind of posting stories and. Even if you can't be here physically, we want to kind of bring the market to you. So something we've done in the last year is Kitchen Stories. We're launching a new Kitchen Story story series um, now. So this kind of brings you stories from inside the kitchens at Manifesto to show you how to make food or tell you about the products or the stories of the chefs behind the food. It's kind of a fun thing for people to watch. So tune into that. I think it's really cool. Yeah, love your content. It's it's always... uh well put together and thought through thank you and um uh, martin i want to thank you um a lot for for taking the time to speak to me and uh as well as kind of walking us through this really difficult and and challenging landscape a, a little bit and and giving us some context uh i appreciate your time and uh i hope we get to speak uh again and hopefully in the setting of a public space
Yeah, thanks, Montes, and thanks to all the listeners for tuning in. I think it's great to talk about these issues and, and uh, try to visit all of your, your local favorite independent restaurants and, and pubs. It's, uh, they all really need it right now. Small footnote. The Manifesto Market reopens May 11th. So if you're in Prague and you're listening to the podcast before this date, you can start planning your journey there. Now, I know this date seems... Uh, perhaps crazy in some parts of the world, but in Prague, it looks like things are easing up and the curve has been flattened. So I wish that the same comes to other parts of the world. And thanks for listening to the podcast. <laughs>